Welcome back to Matinees on Main Street. My name is Alan, and this is the podcast about the history of the movies, from the beginning. Recently, we stepped into the world of a new century, and on the last episode, we looked at the roots of the movie narrative. On this episode, we'll look at the people who were the first to try to make money out of exhibiting movies. We'll take a look at the roots of this new kind of business and see how it developed. If you follow this story, you'll know that the first kinetoscopes were sold to entertainment parlors through the efforts of independent distributors aligned with the Edison Company. Most of these parlor owners had originally dealt with Edison during the rage for phonographs back in the late 1880s and were now interested in showing moving pictures as the latest money-making novelty. While most of these machines ended up in novelty parlors, some of them were displayed in outdoor locations, such as seaside boardwalks, or for a limited time, such places as a county fair. As long as a machine was sold, it really didn't matter who bought it. Then the projectors arrived. While the Lumiere camera projectors were sold throughout the world, very few were sold in America. Instead, it was the Edison Company that sold their projectors in America. But in order for those machines to be viable, they needed a regular diet of movies to project. In order to fill that need, the Edison Company had to provide short films, and they were very disinclined to do so. So in this vacuum, other machines also appeared, including the Biograph, which was manufactured by a company owned by Edison's former employee, William Kennedy Laurie Dixon. The Cineograph, devised by Sigmund Lubund in Philadelphia. The Magnoscope, developed by Edward Amet in Chicago. And the Polyscope, devised by another Chicagoan, William Selig. And there were others that were even less known. Unlike the Kinetoscopes, which were shown in those parlors I mentioned, the projectors were based in vaudeville houses since they could be used to entertain large audiences. The Edisons managed to get their projectors running in Coster and Biles in the spring of 1896, and by that summer, some of the other machines were appearing in other vaudeville houses. At the time, vaudeville was pretty new and had not yet reached the height of its success. Vaudeville was using the movies as another act to lure audiences into the theaters, and the movies were using vaudeville to promote itself. At the time, vaudeville appeared regularly in the big cities, where they put on shows in their own theaters, but once you left the big cities, such as Chicago or Cleveland or New York, for the smaller cities and towns, vaudeville became a little more hit or miss. But there were places where the railroads barely traveled to, and these were the places that greeted wagons, carts, horses, or even people on foot. 
The people who showed up in these towns could be peddling everything from God to collections of Shakespeare's plays, from pots and pans to cure-alls. When they arrived, they might give out handbills and talk up their business. Maybe they went door-to-door or set up a tent so that everyone could view their wares. Entertainment also followed these paths with traveling acting troops, circuses, exhibition baseball teams, vaudeville performers, magic lantern shows, Chautauqua lecturers, and on and on. Two of these people would become among the first moving picture exhibitors. The first and probably the best known was E. Burton Holmes, a travel lecturer. Kind of the Rick Steves or Anthony Bourdain of his day, Holmes was born and raised in Chicago, the son of a banker. Early on, Holmes caught the photography bug, and after he finished his schooling, he traveled with his grandmother to Europe, where he photographed just about everything that stood still for him. When he returned to Chicago, he delighted his camera club with a lecture on the trip. He narrated the show while a stereopticon projectionist flashed the images on the screen. This was in 1890. A few years later, he took a trip to Japan and again regaled his fellow photographers with his stories and pictures. A travel lecturer was born. Holmes was dapper, cultivated, and charmingly interesting. He was more of a cultured travel lecturer than he was a simple projectionist. He traveled primarily to well-established towns and cities. He gave his magic lantern lectures to churches, women's organizations, and to the upstanding citizens of respectable communities. He based his business in New York City, but he traveled and lectured everywhere. For example, in 1898, he not only traveled to the Hawaiian Islands in order to gather material for a future lecture, he lectured there. Holmes' career is rather set upon a line that both places him in the realm of the cinema and outside of it. In the early 1900s, his presentations and lectures started to use moving pictures as an accompaniment to glass slides. These presentations filled an educational vacuum that the movies had not yet provided for our more cultured people, and it set in motion the idea of using the movies as a form of education. Still, Holmes was no cinematic innovator, and his reputation rested more upon his lectures than it did his projection work. Meanwhile, Lyman Howe was a Pennsylvanian who had spent close to a decade promoting and exhibiting a working model of a coal mine. At about the same time that Holmes was lecturing his camera club about his trip to Europe, Howe had junked the mine exhibition for a concert phonograph and started holding phonograph performances while entertaining the audiences. In a sense, he was giving phonograph concerts. He got interested in movie machines fairly early and hoped to purchase the Edison territorial rights to his home state of Pennsylvania. Unfortunately, the territory was taken, and they offered him New York State instead. Rather than being pleased, he passed on the offer. And in some way or another, Howe managed to purchase one of Robert Paul's animatoscopes. 
With the addition of the movie projector, Howe seemed to be trading up in his career as a traveling promoter. His shows tended to combine the phonograph with the animatoscope. He entertained his audiences with decent phonograph recordings, especially the Sousa Gilmore marches, but he also used the phonograph to record the noises that the audience made just to get a reaction from the crowd. He also used his time to show various Edison movies that were popular at that time. Interestingly, Howe would sequence his movie shorts in a way that was similar to making mixtapes. Themes would sometimes be clumped together, or genres, giving an impression of a mood, or even a story when one did not exist. Good exhibitors learned how to do this, and it seems to suggest the exhibitor's contribution to the furthering of the idea of early story concepts using film shorts. To run his movie projector, Howe hired Edwin Hadley, a local electrician. A real love-hate relationship would later develop between the two, or more appropriately, would develop within Hadley's own mind. Hadley would later develop a resentment against Howe due to his success as well as Hadley's own early failures as a traveling exhibitor. To be fair, very few people truly succeeded as traveling exhibitors, and it was only when Howe's success was visible that others started to copy him. At first, Howe stuck close to home, but soon he was exhibiting throughout the eastern part of Pennsylvania and up into western New York. As his business expanded, he focused his greatest efforts towards the northeast, into New York and New England. Originally, Howe used his phonograph to provide sound effects, but within a year or so, he primarily used it to provide music in between real changes, as well as occasional breaks in the film. It's also possible that he used the phonograph to provide music for his films. His first shows were held near his home in Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. Through his experience as a traveling exhibitor, Howe knew the ins and outs of the occupation. Sometimes the building was offered for free, but other times he would have to rent the building for his exhibitions. Sometimes that arrangement meant a percentage of the take, and other times he took care of the box office and paid rent outright. He had to pay Hadley, and he had to arrange lodging for both of them as well as food. The one saving cost was that he didn't have to buy his movies that often, as he just kept the same batch and took them from town to town. There was competition among these exhibitors, but many of them crashed and burned fairly quickly. For example, historian Charles Musser states that the people who did own the Edison territorial rights to Pennsylvania also owned the rights to Ohio. Because of this arrangement, they spent the entire summer of 1896 promoting the Vitascope projector in Cleveland, leaving Pennsylvania open to wildcat exhibitors. When the Biograph projector came out that fall, their promoters stuck to Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, giving even more time to independent exhibitors, which was then mainly how. What is striking is how many religious organizations bought projectors with the intent of showing films, usually one of the Passion Play movies. 
In the late 1890s and into the early 1900s, many of the exhibitions mentioned were offered at churches or at least offered by them. The secular exhibitors get mentioned in the newspapers much less often. Part of that is simply the cost of advertising, although from the beginning Howe chose to advertise. Outside of the religious organizations, the most successful were the theatrical groups. In 1901, one of the most popular was E.O. Towns' troupe and its performance of his play, Too Rich to Marry. Edward Town was a professional playwright who also appeared in his productions, and each performance of Too Rich to Marry also promoted his marvelous moving pictures, which he projected between each act. The Frankie Stock Company also did this, although they specialized in songs and dances. Musser also mentions a number of traveling acting troupes, most of them centered in Pennsylvania. These included the Waite Comedy Company, the Spooner Repertory Company, and the Kitty Road Company. Also touring with movie machines were some of the minstrel shows, as well as medicine shows. The Kickapoos, known for promoting a patent medicine known as Sagwa, put on a big show when it arrived in towns. These patent medicine shows included lectures on a number of topics, performances of clean vaudeville, and, by around 1900, moving pictures. There were also other small exhibitors at this time. Some worked for specific reasons and others covered less fertile territories. For example, an Armenian pastor, Reverend K. H. Besmajian, who was schooled at an American theological seminary, gave traveling lectures throughout the South in an attempt to raise money to help support the Armenian Christians who were already struggling in the Mideast. His lectures included moving images of Turkey as well as of Armenian Christians. Another group was Cosgrove's Merrymakers, an entertainment troupe that worked a small area of the Dakotas. Then there was Signor Filippo Egato, a Cuban pianist who performed on piano and gave talks on Cuba, complete with cineograph. The Carrington Acting Company toured in central Minnesota, and Professor Franz's art tours involved art talks as well as the movies. Then there's Daniel Robertson, who ran a projectoscope company out of New York known as the Brooklyn Entertainment Bureau. Musser says that for a time, Robertson entertained at the New York City churches, playing instruments, telling jokes, and showing his Edison films. A year later, he started traveling in the Chautauqua circuit, where I found him in the Midwestern newspapers appearing with someone named Darlington in the Chautauqua shows. Musser says it was a tour of over 10,000 miles that summer. Howe was proving to be successful with his audiences. He had enough respect for them that he showed them what they wanted, and when a film clip met with their disapproval, he pulled it out. Like a number of other exhibitors, he also learned to entertain his audiences by taking the film strips out of the realm of magic realism and treat them for the film strips that they were. As sequences of images, they could be run in the projector at varying speeds and even reversed. 
In England, Cecil Hepworth talked about stopping his films while they were being run in order to argue with the images on the screen. The audiences loved this kind of mild disrespect towards the medium, as it probably helped them to understand its true nature, as well as break up the tedium of watching news clips and travelogues. By 1900, Lyman Howe's exhibitions were getting big attention. He had become so successful that he had stopped personally touring and hired others to fill the role for him. Now he would stay at home, handle bookings as well as business correspondence and publicity. In his place, he hired a New England monologuist who did chalk sketches and handled the sound effects. He also continued to employ a pianist, a projectionist, and a road manager. This was happening at a time when other exhibitors were still struggling. Charles Musser tells the story of the fire at the Wilson Opera House in Owego, New York, caused by the projectionist who let a cigarette ember drop into the nitrocellulose film. The crew was setting up the show at the time, and no one else was in the building. The films were stored in a trunk, and they burst into flames. The damage to the opera house was significant, and it was a total loss for the exhibition company. Lyman had to cancel bookings for the next two weeks while he managed to purchase another machine and buy new films to replace the old ones. Musser speculates that he may have scored a good price break from Vitagraph as they took over several of his bookings. Lyman also fired his projectionist and rehired Hadley, who was struggling at the time. Lyman also traveled to Europe for the Paris Exhibition of 1900, where he managed to buy several original Méliès prints, but he also had a good relationship with Vitagraph and the Edison Group. He's even been spotted in some of James White's Paris Exhibition films. When Edison would organize the Patent Trust towards the end of the century's first decade, Howe was invited to join, but he turned them down. There are several reasons why so many of these exhibitors struggled at this time, but it's a mistake to confuse their struggles with the market in general. On the face of it, there were just too many exhibitors. You can get a feel for this by seeing how many want ads appear in the newspapers as owners of projectors advertise selling their machines, and you also see ads of people asking to buy them. Maybe these were just the young brothers of men who hoped to find adventure and gold in the Yukon, and now these younger brothers hope to find adventure and gold in moving picture machines. While there is a bit of kidding in that, it does show that even then there were a lot of people who had already developed a romance over the movies, or maybe it was a romance over the money they could possibly make. Another reason for the boom and bust problem with traveling exhibitors is that many of them had no idea what life on the road was like or the problems that they could face. Howe had established connections with his market through his many years traveling and performing with his phonograph. He knew the man who ran the halls and opera houses. He knew where to stay and how to get food and even when to get it. He knew train schedules and how to get to towns not directly connected with the railroads. 
He knew how to deal with bad weather and when the farmers were too busy to attend his shows. He knew how to advertise and promote. All of these different facets of traveling had to be learned by these men who had no idea what the road was like. Another issue is simply demographic. That time, Howe's Market, which was New England into Pennsylvania, was the most densely populated area in America. Everywhere else, south of the Mason-Dixon line and west of the Appalachians, was less populated. It was also not as well-traveled. While the South was not too bad in numbers, the Midwest was much less populated than it is now. There was an interest in the movies in the South, but most people in the South and Midwest saw them through the efforts of their churches, and in many of those places, someone local acted as the exhibitor for the church. In the Midwest, such sparsely populated areas provided poor box office returns in exchange for the long distances a person had to travel. Quite a number of small groups, from Professor Buckwalter to the Carrington Company, attempted to cover this area before disappearing from the record. By the way, Professor Buckwalter is not the same person as the Buckwalter who filmed westerns out in Colorado in 1905. And as for the West, the most popular traveling group was undoubtedly the Beatty Brothers, although it's been very hard to discover any details about these men. There were two men from Kansas known as the Beatty Brothers who had started a cattle ranch, but they were in their fifties by this time. The sons of William Beatty had moved to Colorado, where they were also involved in cattle ranching and mining, and were very successful. In the late 1890s, though, there was some suggestion that the brothers were involved in some stealing of other people's cattle. Only one of the brothers made it to the Seattle area, and his name was Ed. He would become the owner of a knife manufacturing shop. Did any of these young men become involved in the moving pictures? At least one newspaper article suggests that two men, one named Ed and the other named Will, were taking moving picture equipment out into the mining towns of the Rockies in order to take advantage of the loose money there. It's possible that these men, whoever they were, may even have been the sons of the original Beatty brothers, and had taken the idea to the Beatties, and the brothers were financing them. But really, who knows? What is known is that the Beatty brothers' traveling exhibition was billing themselves as the kings of the kinetoscope and covered most of the West. I find them listed everywhere between Southern California and North Dakota around 1903 and 1904. They bragged of their diamond lens on their projecting kinetoscope, and they had six of these machines and a concert phonograph, which also suggests a lot of money backing them, especially as the trails in the West could be quite rough. They had 30,000 films at one point and said that they couldn't be compared to the many so-called moving picture shows of which there were so many traveling in those days. Finally, there were the two men from Chicago, George Spoor and William Selig. 
Chicago's situation was rather removed from New York, and these two men were more involved with early exhibition than they were with production or the manufacturing of movies and machines. I've talked about Spoor in the past, as it was he who helped Edward Amit develop the magnoscope. Spoor was running a vaudeville house in Waukegan, Illinois at the time. His support eventually led to Spoor promoting the magnoscope, and he started to sell the machine and even take it on demonstration tours, which quickly led to traveling exhibitions. By 1897, his kinodrome was already on the market. Spoor had been an investor in that projector also. I can't find any detailed info about the machine, but it was developed by a man named J.P. Bell. And like the Biograph projector, it was marketed as a system rather than just a projector. That meant that the projectionist and the films came with it. And in another comparison to the Biograph, the machine was also considered cinematically superior to other machines on the market at that time. Why the kinodrome was devised as a system is not known. Mutoscope Biograph did it due to the company's need to circumvent Edison's legal arm. They created a superior image by enlarging the film, but the machine's peculiarities, such as its friction roller system, required a skilled operator. Did the kinodrome have its own difficulties that required a specialist? I don't know. What is known is that by 1897, George Spoor was taking it out as a traveling exhibitor, and he seems to have been working the upper Midwest and along the Mississippi Valley. The kinodrome could be found in St. Paul, Minnesota, Omaha, Nebraska, Kansas City, and St. Louis, Missouri, and by 1903, as far away as Baltimore, Maryland. With it went exhibitors and projectionists. Spoor did travel and exhibit for some time, but whether he did what Howe did and hired men to travel for him is not known. And then there was William Seelig, who made himself a colonel. William was a robust man who was born in Chicago and had a restless desire to perform and travel in vaudeville. I'll discuss his history at some future date but I will say that he did spend time performing in San Francisco before wandering back to the Midwest. He was in Texas when he ran into the kinetoscope and sniffed a great opportunity to make money. Back in Chicago, he hired a machinist to knock off a Lumiere projector for him with minor adjustments made to the design, for legal reasons. Soon, he was manufacturing, marketing, promoting, and exhibiting the Seelig Polyscope. The Polyscope thrived because the Lumieres chose to abandon the American market, leaving Seelig's knockoff to spread throughout America's interior. Seelig would be successful enough that he used lawyers to fight Edison when the company finally directed their legal arm towards Chicago. It doesn't look as if Seelig traveled much with his polyscope, so when it was used in traveling exhibitions, it was either as an independent exhibitor or someone the Seelig Polyscope Company hired. By 1904, 
the number of people attempting to exhibit moving pictures had multiplied significantly. Almost all of these people could be compared to startup companies, and their chances of success were very slim. At the same time, the first moving picture houses were appearing, which made the success of these traveling exhibitors even slimmer. One example was the Miller family, which seemed to appear in the Midwest. So were the Brentons, whose traveling exhibition show in Iowa was recently discovered and became the subject of an important documentary on early film. There was Archie Shepard, who would be among the most successful of this later group of traveling exhibitors. And there was E.R. Gurley, who was based in Utah and even named his projection machine after his home state, the Utahnoscope. It seems that this experimentation with different types of exhibition methods grew more prolific the farther west you traveled. While Lyman Howe and the vaudeville houses dominated the east in showing moving pictures, no one, not the Beatty Brothers nor the San Francisco-based Orpheum vaudeville circuit, controlled the west at this time. This pattern would continue once exhibitors started establishing fixed locations and the Nickelodeons started to appear. But that's another story. Next time, I'm going to take a look at the beginning of the patent war as the Edison Company takes on its former employee, William Kennedy Laurie Dixon, and his company, the American Mutoscope and Biograph Company. So thanks for listening and hope to find you back here for the next episode. 